Hi again, everybody. Thanks for checking out LJN Radio, your source for experienced guests and detailed knowledge on all things employment-related. I'm your host, Tim Muma, and in this episode of Employment Notebook, we take a look at what really makes a company a great place to work. And one psychologist has an interesting take on all of it. He is Dr. Ron Friedman, an award-winning social psychologist, and he has a book out called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Ron is joining us today to share some of that fascinating research and the information that we hope you can use in your organization. Ron, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, the question that comes up, uh, you being a psychologist, why did you end up having some interest in writing a book, especially when you're talking about the workplace? You know, it really had to do with my experience. I spent years teaching at colleges and universities and studying human motivation in the lab. And uh, then I got a position as a full-time professor. And I wanted to stretch my skills, so I decided, you know what, this really isn't enough for me anymore. <laughs> I, I, all my life, I thought I'd, being a full-time professor was going to be great. And then I got to that position, and I realized it's kind of teaching the same thing over and over again. And the reason hmm. I got into academics was learning new things. Sure. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to go out and get a different kind of job. And so I applied for a position as a pollster to measure public opinion. And so I entered into the corporate world. And when I got there, I noticed something really unexpected. And that was a huge gap between everything that I took for granted as a psychologist in terms of what researchers know are the conditions that lead to creativity and engagement and productivity, and then what was happening at most organizations. It was everything from the way that companies hire to the way that managers motivate to the basic layout of the modern office. All of it seemed blind to a wealth of research. So I wrote The best place to work is a means of giving everyone an inside look at what science has uncovered in the last few decades about how we can all work more effectively. Well, that's a cool backstory as far as how you got into this and as far as getting these ideas. And obviously, we're going to get into some of the details that you unearth with your book. But first of all, why do you think that a lot of workplaces, even in today's modern society, we have so much information at our fingertips, seem to kind of overlook the idea of psychology and science when it comes to their own workplaces? Well, I think that Frankly, a lot of it is the fact that we're busy and we don't have time as executives and as managers and really as employees to to delve into academic journals. And it's not for a lack of interest. Every manager I've worked with, every person who I've consulted for has had a real deep interest in how they can work more effectively, how they can bond more closely with others, how they can have their employees be more productive. And the reality is, is that all of the information is covered in academic jargon. So if you, for example, or, you know, frankly, 99% of people were to go through, pick up an issue of JPSB, the the prime academic journal in in social psychology, and try to make, uh, find actionable steps in there, it would be really tough going. And so (laughs) I tried to, you know, take all of the information and curate it then distill it and then make all of the insights actionable, whether you're someone who's managing a large organization or whether you're simply someone who's at an entry-level position. Hopefully, there's something in the best place to work that can make you more productive in your job. Well, as I mentioned, we will touch on a few specifics, but the last thing I want to just, as a general sort of maybe summary, what has some of the research shown and maybe even some of the history, if you will, of how science can help in the workplace and how you can maybe impact some of the issues that managers might have? Well, there's really a ton in here. 
So uh, it's, it's going to be tricky for me to summarize all of it because sure. what I try to do in the book is really take thousands of studies okay. and make them useful to people. But if I were to make a broad statement, what I would say is that what people want from their workplace is ultimately the same thing they want in every other domain in life, and that's to have psychologically fulfilling experiences. So we all have these basic psychological needs. And we want to have those fulfilled on a daily basis in order to thrive. And so what are those psychological needs? So from an organizational perspective, what you want to do if you want your employees engaged is you want to create environments that allow them to grow their competence, that allow them to connect to their colleagues in a meaningful way, and that allow them to feel autonomous in the way mm. that they do their work. So those are the basic psychological needs. It's autonomy, competence and relatedness. And to the extent that we have our psychological needs met, really in any domain in life, we're going to be happier, healthier, and more productive. I think that's very well put uh, as far as a summary goes. And as you said, there's a lot of information in here and excellent research that hopefully people can take a look at. You mentioned there just briefly the idea of employee engagement. Of course, that's a huge buzzword that we hear all over the place. And a lot of the studies you'll see say that uh, people just aren't happy. They're not engaged with what they're doing. You alluded to it a little bit there, but are there any other little strategic things or ways that employers could improve the idea of employee engagement? Absolutely. And in fact, that's the whole purpose of the book is it's great to know the theory, right. but you know from consulting with folks is that if you're a busy executive, you don't have time to think about theory. You need mm -hmm. items. So that's what the book is focused on. So for, I'll, I'll just give you a few examples from the employer perspective. Let's focus on competence for a second. If you're looking to grow people's competence, how do you do that? Well, here are some easy things you can do. Offer a reading budget so that employees mm. maybe you know, once a quarter or maybe even once a month can pick up a book that's relevant to their industry and pick up some new skills and new ideas that can help improve their performance at work. And you can set up a little office library where people are exchanging ideas, maybe even a book club. And it's a way of getting people to feel like they're growing their skills, even if the work that they're doing isn't necessarily, you know, doesn't necessarily involve stretch goals or it really is kind of repetitive. There's still a way sure. of fostering that feeling. The other thing is bring in a group every month for uh, a monthly TED Talk, an, an employee-nominated TED Talk. That's something that's relevant to the work that you guys are doing. Encourage employees to take courses. Fund that because the reality is if you want your employees engaged, you need them to feel like they're learning new things. Otherwise, they're going to get bored. And when they're bored, they're going to be disengaged. So that's just a few examples on competence. On autonomy, what you could do as a manager is when you're introducing a new activity or a new task, first thing you want to do is provide a meaningful rationale about why the task that your employee is about to do is going to have value for the company. Oftentimes, sure. managers assume that employees have the same level of information that they do about a project. And that's just not the case. So take a few minutes, talk about why what they're about to do is critical. And then beyond that, rather than simply saying, Here, here's the process I need you to follow, identify what the goals are and invite your employee to figure out what the process is going to be for themselves and consult with you on it. And that way they feel like they're the ones who are in control rather than simply following your agenda. And then finally, on connectedness, there's so much you can do. You know, there's in many organizations, we kind of throw employees in together and we hope that you know, they'll, they'll have some close connections develop on some level. But there's so much research showing that if your employees feel like their colleagues or their close friends, they're better at staying on task, they're more likely to tell their colleagues when they're making a mistake, and they're more likely to ask for help. And so that it leads to so much better performance when people feel close to one another. So what can you do to do that? One is when you're introducing people, don't just when someone's entering your organization, don't just talk about their professional experience. Talk about some of their interests outside of the workplace. Mm -hmm. 
And what that does is it creates some opportunities for people to bond over non-work matters. So for example, I might say, here's Tim. Tim uh, plays softball on the weekends. He bakes some cupcakes. Um, <laughs> he has his time off, you know, and he's got three kids in the Pittsburgh school district. And so now, I, you know, maybe I cook cupcakes. Maybe I play softball. Maybe I have kids who are right. school age. There, there are ways for us to talk about things and feel like we're bonding in a close way. So this is not a book about theory. This is a book about what anyone can do to improve their company if they're a manager. And if they're an employee, I could talk about that too. I don't know if you have time. I could tell you about some things that employees can do to have their psychological needs met as well. But it's all in the book and I try to cover a ton of stuff. So that'll give you just a, a flavor for some of the work that's uh, included. Yeah. And I think those are some great tips and strategies. And as you said, I think the practical advice is really what people are always looking for where they can implement it on their own. Uh, there's a lot of theories out there, but not often that guide to help us out. So I do appreciate some of that info. Another thing that stood out to me as far as a note from the book that I had seen was the idea of rewarding failure and how that can be beneficial. Two questions with that. One, how do you even go about rewarding failure? And two, how is it actually beneficial? Well, let me start with the second one first, because I think it's important for people to know what the value of failure is. And so there's a lot of stories and a lot of research that I talk about in the chapter called Success is Overrated, Why Great Companies Reward Failure. And if you look at the companies that are really at the top of their game, places like Google, places like Apple, their founders, and really the the mantra of the company is to try new things because they realize that it's only by taking risks that you outperform the competition. So if you look at Google, they have a kind of an appalling record of failure, and yet they're (laughs) one of the most successful companies in the world. So if you look at Google Reader, Google Buzz, Frugal, Google Wave, they have this long list of projects that failed miserably. And one of the things you, you hear when you look over interviews with some of the leadership there is that they, they really kind of stand behind the idea of taking risks. So they realize, you know, the only way for our company to thrive is to try new things. And, and then I talk about some of the research on creative geniuses, people like Shakespeare and Dickens and Mozart. There's actually research looking at what differentiates them from their contemporaries. And one of the things that stands out when you look at their record is that they offer more solutions relative Mm. to people who are their contemporaries. And so what that means is, yes, they're more successful, but in part, it's because they're always offering more solutions. So actually, it's kind of funny to think about it. Mozart produced more songs than many of his contemporaries. And many of those songs are not ones that we remember, ones that either you or I really have ever heard in our lives. And essentially, they're failures. They're songs (laughs) that didn't work out. And it was because of the high level of attempts that led to high level of, of successes. The other thing is when we are afraid of failure, let's look at the flip side. What happens when you're afraid of failure is that you're not quite as good at learning new things. And it's, if you think about how learning happens, it's by trying new things. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but it's taking that feedback and incorporating it into your behavior that allows you to perfect and to add new skills to your repertoire. So there's a lot of benefit to failure. And so the other, and one final thing I'll, I'll just add is when a company demands perfection, what that does is for their people is it leads them to cover up mistakes when they actually happen. And that's a really dangerous problem because as the manager, if you aren't aware of problems that are going on, you can't fix them. Mm-hmm. So companies like, uh, and I give some examples in the book, in the pharmaceutical industries, places like Merck and Company and Eli Lilly, they're rewarding their scientists when a drug fails, a new drug fails to yield results. In other words, they're testing a new drug and that drug's not working out. They want to know that as soon as possible. And they're rewarding their researchers with additional stock options 
and throwing failure parties because they <laughs> it, knowing when if the failure is happening allows them to address it and then improve and reassign those scientists to new projects. There are other companies I talk about in the book that offer a heroic failure award because they realize that if you're not rewarding the attempts, a high level of attempts uh, of trying to fail at some things, of of trying to succeed at some things and then failing as a consequence, you're not going to get people taking risks. So that'll give you a little bit of a a sense for, for some of this. And ultimately, you know, what I, what I argue in the book is that companies are a lot more effective when they make improvement, not perfection, their primary objective, because sure. that gives their people permission to try new things and to learn and to admit failure when it happens so that they can improve along the way. Well, it's a fascinating perspective, and I think people who are listening can definitely appreciate some of the points you brought up there. And of course, if you want to look for some more details, uh, we encourage you to look, look, look for that book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Ron, we're uh, a few more things I wanted to get to, and something that stood out were some of these kind of outside the box items that were mentioned to me. I just want to get, guess give you a couple of those, and if you could fill the listeners in quickly on those aspects. One was the idea of thinking like a hostage negotiator. Where does that come into play? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you look at how hostage negotiators convince the people they're negotiating with to give themselves up. And I have the story in the book about this high school student who came back into their high school, took a lot of students hostage. And, you know, a few hours later, after talking to the hostage negotiator, this person gives himself up without harming anyone. And so the question is, what did the hostage negotiator say? And when you look at some of the things that they do, their techniques, they're really some of these techniques that we can apply in the way that we do our work with our colleagues to have better and stronger relationships. And I'll give you just one key, quick key takeaway, and that is that when people feel heard, their resistance dissolves. So when you're trying to convince someone else and persuade them and really increase your influence in any domain, what we're often liable to do is to try to badger them with facts and you try to convince them about why we're wrong, right, right and what, why they're wrong. And that turns out to be not a very effective technique. A better technique is to hear them out because then they're a lot more likely to listen to your perspective. And so I talk about some of the techniques that hostage negotiators use and how we can all apply them into our uh, workplace relationships, into our friendships, and into our marriages. No, I love hearing that, uh, again, different angle on on some of those things. Another uh, aspect of this was the idea of, I guess, the benefit of the structure of video games. How does that relate to the workplace? You know, we can learn a lot from the way that video games are structured. If you think about the things that we do when we're playing video games like Tetris or Angry Birds, they're not particularly glamorous things. We're sorting cards or we're moving blocks around or we're throwing a bird at some pigs. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) But, you know, what, what ends up happening is we end up playing these games at sometimes a pretty large personal cost. We give up our free time. We're often playing late into the night, off onto the weekends. And so the question is, how are these, what is it that these games offer us? And so many of the facets of video games are some of the things that we desperately seek in our work that we don't get. So for example, we get instant feedback on whether or not we've done well or not. Oftentimes at work, you write a memo, you have no idea, was it a good memo? I don't know. And you don't have that feedback. So there's, that's something that we can learn from in terms of the structure of video games. The other thing video games offer us is recognition. When you do well, you move on to the next board. And often at work, we don't necessarily get recognition. And then the third thing is, and this is key, is progressive difficulty. Video Mm. games get harder the longer you play them, and that keeps us engaged. What happens at work, it's often the opposite trajectory, where when you start a job, it's difficult, but then a few months into it or a year down the road, it's boring. What we can all learn from that is that if we're looking for an optimal job or if you're a manager and you're looking to really engage your employees, 
What you want to do is offer some of the features of video games in order to keep your employees engaged. You heard it here first. Uh, Ron Friedman is suggesting real-life Angry Birds in the office. That's, that's what I'm getting from it. No, but seriously, it is a cool way to look at it. And I think it's something, as you said, people can relate to. And uh, it makes perfect sense when you're breaking it down like that. Ron, we are up against the clock here. I wanted to give you the floor at the end. The way things have changed over the years and evolved, especially if you think about technology and the way the workplace has changed as well, what are your thoughts on how the future workplace might look and how things might continue to evolve? Well, I'm hopeful that we're going to get a lot smarter at applying some of the science into the way we design workplace experiences. And so, you know, my, my book is, is intended to take thousands of studies and make them accessible to people and talk about how we can all work more effectively by learning from some of the research findings. And I think we're going to move in that direction. You know, about 10, 15 years ago, Moneyball came out and really revolutionized the way that sports is conducted today. Mm -hmm. So uh, for a long time, people thought that it was home run hitters that lead baseball teams to wins. And then they figured out by looking at the data that, no, it's actually on base percentage that's really key to building an effective team. And I think we're going to get a lot smarter at building our work days by looking at the data. So one of the things I talk about in the, work, in the best place to work is that we're a lot better at staying focused earlier in the day, but we're a lot better at creative tasks late in the day. Hmm. And I think we're going to get a lot better at calibrating the tasks that we do to time of day by looking at the data. And hopefully you can start by applying some of the research that I talk about in the book. Some very intriguing stuff for our listeners today, Ron. Uh, again, if you want to check out the book, it is The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And Ron, I have to say any guest that has a mention of baseball in any of my shows automatically gets up to the top <laughs> spot in my book. So Ron, thanks for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. With that, we'll wrap up this edition of Employment Notebook. Again, we are talking with Ron Friedman, an award-winning social psychologist and the author of the book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. If you'd like to get in touch with us, if you have any feedback on this show or any of our podcasts, send us an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. Of course, you can check out more podcasts at ljnradio.com and find us on Twitter at the LJN. For everyone here at LJN Radio, I'm your host, Tim Muma. Take care, everybody. 